little bit adjusting to that. It's been a few years, but I'm like, I still kind of reel every time I come up on stage and I, I just have the honor of, of sharing a word, a word that God's put on my heart with you guys. So um, just so you know, that's, yeah, I was kind of reflecting on that this morning. Um, I just want to start off this morning by debunking a myth that is, has kind of been a part of the church for a very long time. Um, and, and that is that John is a good book to give new, new believers or new people and kind of a, a good book to introduce people to Jesus. I, so if you, I mean no disrespect, if you came to know Jesus through the book of John, that is amazing. But John is not a good book to introduce people to Jesus through. We often tell people to start with John. Hear me out, hear me out before you throw things at me. Um, we, often, we often tell people to start with John, and we give them maybe a track and a copy of John. Um, but John actually has a lot of really sophisticated elements to it. And, and the more I continue to read this story uh, and study this book, I'm constantly discovering new things that I never knew about before. Um, and this morning, we're going to be digging into a passage that has so many layers that I think it might actually be impossible to understand fully the depth of what John is trying to communicate. Uh, Every verse, every word choice, and every detail that John includes when uh, recounting Jesus' arrest in the garden carries with it implications that continue to deepen the story. Um, I set out to explore the themes of denial uh, and talk about how Judas and Peter both choose themselves over Jesus, which we're going to talk about. Uh, But through this process, I discovered so many other things that informed the story that it was almost almost literally painful for me. That sounds really dramatic, but I work with kids. Um, It was almost literally painful for me to figure out what I needed to cut and what I needed to include this morning. And Dave helped me out a lot. He just blacked out huge sections. It was good. Um, So let's begin at the beginning. Because in today's passage, John is doing something that involves Jesus, Judas, Peter, and even Adam. And that's not our worship leader, Adam, like Adam, like Adam and Eve. So, so let's go back to Genesis 1.1. Oh, you, oh, let's take, take it down, take it down. I was going to ask a question, sorry. Genesis 1.1, what does it say? Does it, any, there's, a, there's a big hint on the screen. Does anyone know what it says? What does it say? In the beginning, that's right. So you guys, I mean, you guys got a little bit, yeah, it's good. You guys got a little bit lucky. There was a little bit of help from Doug in the back. But uh, I, so it's, yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty And darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. In the beginning, God created. Last week in Youth Sunday School, we spent a bit of time talking about the authority of God and about being created with purpose. And I actually, I asked the same question, and we sat there in silence for about like five minutes. It might not quite have been five minutes, but it was a long time. We sat there in silence. It's like, what does Genesis 1-1 say? And then eventually one of the girls, of course, it was one of the girls, sheepishly just kind of said, in, in the beginning? And it was like, a, it was a question. And I was like, yes, in the beginning. And yeah, it kind of, it rolled into what we were talking about. Um, so I'm going to ask that question again of you guys, but this time about John 1.1. So I think we might have already had a hint. But what does John 1.1 say? John 1, wait, did I? John 1.1. In the beginning, right. It's the same thing. So in the beginning was the word, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness can never extinguish it. So right from the beginning of his gospel, John is setting up a new Genesis, I'll put that in quotations, a new Genesis account. He takes us back to the beginning of the story, and he replaces Adam with a new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. The key difference, though, is in 114, when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is key to understanding John. The word, and word here is talking about God, came down and met us where we're at. The message says, so the message translation, I really like the wording, it says, um, the word came down and moved into the neighborhood. He isn't distant, he's here and he gets it. And John's constant goal is to show us the word, Jesus, he comes into this world, into this kingdom, and sets up a distinctly different kingdom. And today's passage is a really good example of that. So now that we understand that piece and we've gone back, let's dive into our passage for today. And in continuing with this new Genesis theme, John takes us into a garden. So this is mirroring the Garden of Eden. It's going to kind of be a theme this morning in chapter 18. And here we launch into a discourse that either contains some very intentional slapstick level comedy um, or contains some incredibly deep layers. I, I think it's, it's probably the latter, but... Um, yeah, let's read. Did I say that right? The latter. Let's read this together. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now, with blazing torches and lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell on the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you had given me. Then Simon Peter drew out his sword and slashed the right ear off Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father had given me? If you didn't catch the irony in there, let me recap kind of what happens. So a large group of military and police-type guys, um, in verse 3, the Greek actually uses a word that describes a company of 500 people, so it could, could have been a lot of guys, um, come carrying torches and lanterns in order to find one guy who's repeatedly referred to as the light. When they find him, he takes the initiative in verse 4, right? He says, who are you looking for? He isn't actually hiding. He approaches them and asks them who they're looking for. Then when he says who he is, there's this whole falling over thing that happens. If you're just joining us this week or you're not really familiar with the words I am within the context of Scripture, but particularly within John, um, prior to this point, 
Jesus has made seven I am statements in the, throughout the book of John. Um, I am is God's most holy name, and, and, and Jesus, by making these statements, is claiming that authority. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Here, though, just I am. It isn't just a name. Jesus is stating who he really is, and in that moment, it's so overwhelming that whether voluntarily or involuntarily, a whole company of soldiers and temple guards, Jews and non-Jews, I think that's really important, non-Jews, who are coming to arrest him, fall back. From there, Jesus sort of gives the terms of his arrest in verse 8. He tells them that he'll go with them as long as he lets the others go. Then Peter does this missed sword swing, and we're reminded that he's a fisherman and not a soldier. He can't even kill a servant. I think that's kind of a little, little piece of humor thrown in there. And there's tons of stuff in here, and it kind of leaves a lot of questions for me. There's this constant reference to light and darkness that's continued throughout John. Jesus' power and voluntary submission are kind of in contrast to one another, and it leaves questions about who's really in charge, right? Who's really in charge in this situation? Uh, But the place I want to enter into the story today is actually in verse 11. So we're going to read that one more time together right here. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. We're probably a little bit more angry. Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of suffering the Father has given me? This passage, or, or part of the story, is often known for, for Judas's denial. And then later, as we read earlier, Peter's denial. But there's actually a much more significant denial that happens here. Jesus denying his own rights, fears, and freedoms. And we start to understand this more as we take a look at the whole picture of these verses. And there's a scene that's mirrored here. So I don't know if you're you're kind of tracking with this new Genesis thing. There's a a scene that's mirrored here. Um, And for that, to understand that, we need to turn back to Genesis 3, actually. So back to the beginning again. Back to another garden. So let's turn to Genesis 3, and we'll pick up the story in verse 7. And this is just after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. It says, uh, At that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord called to the man, where are you? So track that, keep that in your mind. And let's uh, contrast that with, with Jesus in John 18, verse 3 and 4. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the Olive Grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus was not only not hiding, but he took the initiative. And the narrative here is completely reversed. I just think that's so cool, you know, God looking for man, man's hiding, and then these men, these violent men, come looking for Jesus, and and he's right there. They find him kind of by accident. 
well, maybe not by accident, maybe by, by God's design. Jesus doesn't hide because he doesn't need to. Not only has he not done anything wrong, but he's so willing to follow the will of his father that he takes the initiative with those who are, that are looking for him. Where Adam chooses himself, Jesus, who had every right to choose himself, chooses to follow God's will. Jesus does what Adam couldn't. And this is where you actually can't deny that John is writing on more than one level. This is not just a simple betrayal, arrest, death, and resurrection story. I mean, that sounds pretty complicated, but it's not that simple. John doesn't go into the details of Judas' betrayal here, um, but earlier in the gospel, he mentions that Judas was a thief. Uh, He mentions Judas' plan to betray Jesus. And then here, just at the beginning, he mentions that Judas was the betrayer. Um, We've seen John juxtapose uh, Jesus and Adam. And now we're seeing that same juxtaposition with Judas and Jesus. I just wanted to use that word twice. We're seeing the same thing, right? Judas chooses to pursue his greed and chooses himself over Jesus. And Jesus, who, though he had every right to choose himself, follows willingly and takes Judas's place. Jesus also does what Judas couldn't do. And so Jesus goes willingly, denying himself and going with his, let's say, captors. So let's continue reading. Let's pick it up in verse 12. So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. I'm not sure why. Okay, they tied him up. First they took him to Annas, and since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did one of the other disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Even Peter, who went farther than most, still denied him. So let's let's continue reading. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I am speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus, again, tying him up, I don't understand, um, and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the Olive Garden with Jesus? 
Again, Peter denied it, and immediately the rooster crowed. Again, there's lots of stuff in here, and that text, the text just opens so many doors. Who's the disciple who knew the high priest? Who's the one whom, was it the one whom Jesus loved? We don't know. The timeline here doesn't quite look the same as in other gospels, but I actually think that's kind of an intentional choice. Um, and it shows the darkness and confusion mixed through this whole process. People sending Jesus back and forth and, and not really knowing what's going on. John emphasizes opposites here, which I think is kind of interesting. Jesus, who's being accused of speaking in secret, actually never did. And, and the high priest, who is questioning Jesus in secret, is actually the one that's guilty. Um, the high priest of this world, God's representative, sends away the true high priest, God in the flesh, to be questioned. It just is interesting, all these, all these opposites and contrasts. And on top of this, we cut back and forth to Peter in the courtyard, who not only denies Jesus once, but three times. Peter, who earlier assaulted the high priest's servant, is outside deserving rebuke and allowing fear to cripple him, while Jesus is being slapped and rebuked inside, having done nothing wrong and facing it all with courage. This is the first time in John that we see Jesus take the rebuke that his follower had earned. And it actually won't be the last. The violence only escalates from here. Where Peter chooses himself and gives into his fear, Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, follows with courage the will of the Father and faces the punishment that Peter deserved. Jesus does what Peter couldn't. Throughout this passage, Jesus continues to reverse the narrative and does what Adam, what Judas, and what Peter were all unable to do. Adam hid, Jesus didn't. Judas chose greed, and Jesus chose sacrifice. Peter chose fear, and Jesus chose courage. Instead of choosing himself, Jesus chooses again and again to deny himself and follow the will of God. Not my will, but yours. And that's our example to follow. So what does that mean for us? I, sorry Dave, I'm going to go off script for a second. I, I kind of struggled this morning, or not this morning, this week when I was writing this, and I was trying to figure out, actually up until this morning, a, a hook or a story or something to kind of bring this together for me. And, and I feel like the hard thing about this is it happens in small ways. And, and there's no big denial it, in my story where I can think of and go, that's what this is like, because it's not. It's a ton of small things. What does it look like to deny yourself? Like often it's the opposite of choosing yourself. And just like the examples in today's text, it can take many forms. Choosing yourself over the will of God might be as easy to pin down as greed or as lust or as addiction. Those ones are easy actually to pin down the big things. But I think for many of us, I know for this is true for me, it's much more difficult to see I'm often reminded that following Jesus means that I need to give up my right to be comfortable. And comfortable can mean a lot of things. Comfort is a tricky one because it, it creeps in and starts to invade. And sometimes it, it can look like, well, I deserve blank. Or I or, or we need blank in order to be happy. Comfort can even take hold here in church. It becomes about who I engage with, who I say hi to, 
who we invite to stuff, how we do things, who is invited to join my care group. It's so easy to let comfort get in between us and the things that God calls us to do. Um, I was challenged with this kind of this last couple of weeks. I have, I have youth leaders that understand this way better than I do. And I, Liam and, I haven't seen Liam yet and Julie. I'm going to talk about both of them, and they're amazing. Um, last week, seriously, they understand so well what it means to be a good youth leader. I was talking with Liam Doherty um, last week, and he said a, a few things. I asked him, what does it mean to be a good youth leader? And he said a, a few really good things. And then he just looked at me and he said, well, basically, it means be... Be willing to be uncomfortable. Yes. There's this is a, an example of this. There's a couple of girls in our youth group that, that started to come because of a personal invite, but they stayed not because of games or of fun, but because Julie chose to be uncomfortable, walk up to them, and invite them in. And that's very different than just saying hello. She said, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Come and sit with me. And that's, that's actually very different. And that, that leaves us awkward and vulnerable and open to being rejected. Stepping out of our comfort can be scary. And it means that we need to make ourselves vulnerable. It might mean that I don't get to see some of my friends as often because splitting up our group and growing two new care groups is actually healthy and means new people can also begin to call self Langley home. I find the uh, I am declaration that we talked about earlier in the text, interesting. They caused me to kind of stop and think. Judas had Jesus speak directly to him with so much power that that it either knocked them over or they recognized his authority and willingly fell over. And yet Judas still chose himself over Jesus. And I was thinking about my own life and how often Jesus speaks directly to me I don't know if you can relate how often Jesus speaks directly to us, and yet we still choose ourselves. Then later on, if you can't relate to that, that's okay, because we get a second story. Later on, Peter, who witnessed Jesus speaking to Judas with that same power, and never mind, in in both of these cases, never mind all the other stuff that Jesus did, Peter also chose himself over Jesus. How often do we see the things that Jesus is doing Do we hear about them from stage here in our own lives? How often do we see the things that Jesus is doing and the ways that he's speaking, and yet we still choose ourselves? Fear creeps in and life takes over, but where sin and brokenness keep us trapped, Jesus overcomes. So the good news is, Jesus does what we can't, but it actually doesn't end there. The stories of Judas and Peter both end in very different ways. One in hopelessness and despair and ultimately in death. And the other in a reinstatement that blows away all expectation. In John 21.15, Jesus brings Peter back to the place where it happened. A charcoal fire. So I don't want to steal too much from this sermon because it's going to be a good one. But... uh, Peter sees Jesus on the shore, and he jumps off, and he swims to the shore, and Jesus is waiting there at a charcoal fire. And Jesus reopens Peter's wounds and brings healing to Peter's shame. He asks him three questions. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? See, Peter's denial puts Jesus on the cross just as much as Judas's does. 
just as much as yours does and just as much as mine does. Jesus came to do what we could not, to deny himself and take on the consequences that we deserved but we couldn't bear. And the amazing thing is that our story doesn't have to end like Judas. The healing that Jesus brings to Peter actually isn't just reserved for him. He's not that special. The same healing and new life is also available to us. The unexplainable reality is that both of these guys, as well as the other ones who ran away, we're letting like 10 guys off the hook here, maybe nine if we don't count the disciple who was in the, the courts. They're all welcome to the table with him, and yet somehow we are too. Jesus invites us to join him. As I call the band back up, I just want to read um, 1 Corinthians 11, and, and Paul writes this. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. In a minute, we're going to do communion when we drink the cup and eat this bread, we're identifying with Jesus. We're choosing him. It's a symbolic action, but we're choosing him. And today, you're actually invited to the table. We aren't going to pass communion around today. We, we want to invite all of those who, who understand the supper's meaning and confess Jesus as Lord in word and life and, and are accountable to our congregation uh, who are living in right relationship with God, we invite you guys to participate in the Lord's Supper. We're going to come forward today. In, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and the, the band is going to start to play. And you can stand up, and you can sing when you're ready. Make your way down. We'll do these two aisles, and then once you get your elements, you can go back to your seat. Um, you, you don't need to wait for a cue this morning. It's just you and Jesus and a room full of people around a charcoal fire. Um, if you desire prayer, now's a great time for that as well. Uh, make your way to one of the prayer team members here at the front. Um, they'll be wearing lanyards. Uh, let's pray, and we'll begin.